2: Recollections Radio, Monday morning tea time is now all about sharing memories with you, old and new of life in Dunedin. Bringing you stories, interviews and music from times past and inviting you to share your memories with us. Presented by Jill Bowie and Kay Mercer, the team behind Dunedin Public Library's Scattered Seeds Archive. Thanks to generous funding by the New Zealand Libraries Partnership Project.
0: Recollections Radio, Monday mornings at 11 on 105.4 FM and 1575 AM.
2: Hello and welcome to Recollections Radio and happy Otago Anniversary Day to everyone.
0: Yeah, happy Anniversary Day. Thank you. What We've
2: got you go? a day off today.
0: I know. Hurrah. Perfect. The library is closed but yep. uh, the digital library is always open. Absolutely,
2: so. absolutely. Well after today, after the show, what are you going to do with the rest of your day? Well. I was thinking
0: it would be a perfect day to maybe visit Ulverston
2: Oh, that's a nice idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, yeah. What,
0: what's happening there? Well, because they have their sort of regular tours and uh, and then they have some specialty ones as well. Ah,
2: when when do they happen?
0: So some of them will be like the first Tuesday of the month. So they have okay. a behind the ropes tour. So you can oh. go and I know, doesn't that sound great? Yeah. So you can go and. Um, discover items that, you know, you wouldn't normally see on a tour. Mm. And then they have an art tour, which is the second Tuesday of the month, so you can learn I, about... I
1: heard
2: that they had an astounding amount of art at yes. Old Yeah, Yes, um, yeah,
0: 240 artworks on Good display. Good I know, yeah, so, I mean, they were major collectors of they were. art, yeah. yeah, so that's definitely worth going to visit. And, uh, and then there's an, an architectural tour, which is on the third Tuesday of the month, and uh, so you can learn about... Um, the architect so it was the London architect uh, Sir Ernest George who designed the
3: ah, home and, uh, yeah, right. so you can
0: go from concept plans right through to the to the finished amazing house. so yeah definitely you know worthwhile visiting and then yep. just go onto their website they always have a garden tour so that was the fourth Tuesday beautiful the month, so there's day. something yeah. for everybody there well there is yeah and if yeah. you've got people coming to visit I mean you know yeah. take them there that's you know. a really and, great thing I've going to say they have a a really good gift shop too. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I'm looking forward to a visit there. I think we need to take our yeah take our broadcast there maybe.
0: <laughs> I, know. I tend to get trapped in the bookshop, the gift shop for a while. So um,
2: yes, <laughs> uh, yeah. Now I've been reading some interesting facts about Dunedin, and I came across the. And actually, I knew this, but i have forgotten about it. Did you know that one of the world's largest pianos is displayed in Piano Workshop in Stuart Street?
0: One of the
2: world's largest Largest pianos. Pianos. It's actually really long Uh, um, and it was built by a young man. And when he was a teenager, I think he was about 16 years old, when he built this, he was, I think he was in Timaru or Omaru when he built it. So it's just uh, off King Edward Court in Stuart Street, you know, the big red building. Mm -hmm. Almost 19 feet long and it's one of the largest pianos in the world adrian Mann began constructing the musical wonder which he named after his great-great-grandfather that must be why it's called alexander Oh, he was only 15 years old when he started making this piano he got the idea to build the instrument in 2004 after stumping his teacher with his question about how long brass strings would have to be to create the correct notes if they weren't wrapped in the usual copper wire so if you stretched out the wire instead of winding it. How long would it have to be to get to the right note? And when his teacher couldn't give him an answer, he decided to find out for himself by building a massive piano in his back garden. So he completed his mission in 2009 at the age of 20. The piano clocks in at an impressive eighteen and three quarter feet, which is more than twice as large as a typical concert grand piano, <laughs> which is big in itself a concert grand piano. Mm. So creating the enormous instrument was a group effort. Neighbours and friends provided spaces to build it and others helped by donating money, timber and tools. He made it just a beautiful job. It's a fabulous piano. It's not it's not like oh I made this out of, you know, plywood or anything. It is beautiful. So if you do get a chance to go to Alexander Pianos in Stewart Street, have a look at it. So it's a feat of, of engineering. It's
0: different from a normal piano. We have to go and see what the sound, how the length of the piano
2: wire... Affects the sound, sound. yeah. Well, it certainly does. I mean, it's been played by some visiting concert pianists mm. have come and had a, had a play on it. It's, he's done tours with it. I don't know how he takes it because move? it's huge. I it's not
0: exactly like carrying a guitar case, is it? No, it's sure. not. So,
2: and, and every time you move a piano... You have to retune it. So, yes. and I imagine it's quite a specialist art so. to retune that piano. But we've had uh, Elton John's keyboardist came and played it when Elton John oh, of was course, in town, yeah. and Queen's keyboardist came and had Amazing. a go you know so people are sort of queuing up to play on this thing because it's such an amazing instrument so yes I thought that was interesting that we had in little old Deneen we had one of the world's longest largest pianos and all built by a 15 year old (laughs) (laughs) fabulous
0: speaking of pianos it's probably time for a song and what better way to celebrate pianos than uh, to play piano man by Billy Joel perfect track
4: really sure And probably will be for life And the waitress is practicing politics As the businessmen slowly get stoned
0: Piano Man by Billy Joel. So uh, what have you been up to this week, Kate?
2: Hey? Oh, well, I've had a very busy week, a really interesting week, actually, because I have been uploading the Southern Heritage Trust's digital content to our archive. Fantastic. And in particular, that's given me the opportunity to have a look through their video tours because local historian Gregor Campbell did a couple of video tours. One of the Southern Cemetery and one of the Dunedin Northern Cemetery, which has got some fascinating... St- really, he's a fa- fabulous storyteller, really is. Worth, they're well worth a look, so have a look at those videos. But he's basically telling the stories each of each individual, not all of them, but of several of the graves. Um, and it? they were recorded as part of the 2021 Autoporti Dunedin Heritage Festival. And did you know, for example, that in the Southern Cemetery, there are princes... No buried. way! <laughs> yes, two. Two princes... Who are these princes? Of Poland. Princes Lubeki of Poland. There's actually apparently a Russian princess in Anderson's Bay as well. But we'll go into that another time. Really? Um, <laughs> but the princes in the Southern Cemetery are Prince Alois Konstantin Lubeki, who was a descendant of Prince Rurik. He was a Norseman or Viking whose family ruled what became the Kingdom of Russia from the 9th to the 17th century. And Prince Alois descended from a branch of that family which settled in Lithuania and after the union with Poland effectively became a Pole. So anyway, there's a long, long story about him but um, it's really fascinating how he ended up... I was going to say, how did he end up in Dunedin, yes. of all places? So Alois was a general in the Polish National Army and with the collapse of the uprising he left his homeland for Dresden in Saxony. And then after he got seriously ill he moved to France and then he moved to England and there he met and married Laura Dufus Hmm. That's probably not pronounced like I was that. I'd say it would <laughs> be Duffus, I don't know. In 1836. And he, possibly inspired by his brother in law, the Reverend John Duffus, sailed with him to Australia. And he arrived in October 1838 and settled in Parramatta. And their first child, Jean Constantine, was born soon after arrival. But their fortunes did not prosper, and Alois was unable to find work. So they'd opened a school for young ladies in 1840 at Goff House in Parramatta. And the young, where the young ladies were taught the basics and I don't know what the basics were. I was were. going to say, where the <laughs> They were taught the basics of life. <laughs> being a lady. No, being ladies. <laughs> and for an extra fee, they could be taught piano forte. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Singing, drawing, French or dancing. So all the useful stuff. Yes. So the school flourished and so did the Lubecki family. Alois Duffus Lubecki was born in 1841. This is where he comes in. But at the end of that year, there was a depression and the school was broke by March 1842. And Alois suffered a. This must be the father. Alois suffered a nervous breakdown, and the family moved to Sydney. Um, They had two daughters in Sydney, and then shortly after that, they moved to Melbourne, where Alois worked as a confectioner, while Laura taught. And Alois Junior, this is our Alois, joined the Victorian civil service as a trainee telegraph operator in 1862. And in June 1863, the family sailed for New Zealand and settled in a house on the corner of George and Union Streets in Dunedin. There you go. So oh, that's I how mean, they
0: ended up here. I wonder if the house is still standing. Oh, it might Jordan, be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Have a wee stroll well, down this afternoon. You can yeah. find more
2: about that on the um, Southern Heritage Trust website. So how fascinating that is that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, they opened a, another school for young ladies in Dunedin, mm. and they followed that profession until 1895. So, uh, yeah, they were very good at training young ladies to yes. be young ladies, basically. <laughs> so that's that's how come the... The girls of Dunedin have ended up how they are.
0: Exactly. That's why we've got so many
2: delightful ladies in town. And that's how come we've got two princes.
0: <laughs> well, that is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's know, The things great. that you learn in this job is it really pretty is. amazing. It really
2: is. So that's the Southern, uh, southern, southern um, Cemetery. There's all sorts of stories in there. But there's also a tour of the Northern Cemetery oh. that Gregor's done. So you can have a look at that one as well. Yeah. I was going to say my
0: family belong in that in that cemetery. Ah. I've done the tour with my mother, had the map and gone around and found members of um, my mother's mother's yeah, side of the family. Oh, so, it's really yeah, cool. It's, it's fascinating, actually. It? It? It's amazing just to think, yeah. you know, because we didn't know where we were going, and so you just I mean we got lost. But I think that's more our fault than the map's fault. And uh, but we eventually found our family. So I've got yeah. lots of photographs of my mother sitting <laughs> sitting <laughs> in front of gravestones. Nice,
2: which is lovely. Yeah. But it's not really. I mean, it sounds weird, but. It's actually really nice to go and wander it's, around the cemeteries. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. they're, they're great places.
0: And just all the different headstones and... Yeah. yeah. Some
2: really cool stories And, you and know. they've got a geocache at the Northern Cemetery. Oh, do they? They have, yeah. I've ah. done it myself with my wow, kids. Amazing. They were bored stiff, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's the most... That's the... That's the important yeah. part, isn't it? Who doesn't me? love a treasure hunt? Exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and they have got some really interesting sort of creations in the in the Northern Cemetery as well, mm. haven't
0: they? Well, they've got um, the Zlarnik's tomb, which yeah. I didn't realise... Until the last time I went up there was a replica of First Church. Wow. And designed by R.A. Lawson.
2: So a much smaller, rep- like quite, a model. Quite a small yeah. version,
0: yeah, yeah, but it's kind of sweet to think that yeah, you'd be entombed in there, you know, in yeah. yeah, a little a little baby First Church. Very cool. Beautiful, yeah. Very cool. And um, Thomas Bracken's there as well. Oh! <laughs> What a what a place! Connection exactly. The city of literature. Yeah, the first person to use the phrase "God's own country" when talking about New Zealand. Ah, So pretty amazing.
2: Inventor of God's own.
0: Yes, and writer of "God Defend New Zealand" as well. And you can visit his plaque on the Writers Walk in the Octagon
2: as well. Fantastic. It's fascinating stuff. I think it's probably time we introduced our guest today, don't you? Probably is. Well, we have visited last. Was it last week? Whatever. We popped up to the Tyree. Historical Society, uh, their park up at Outram, on the hill, overlooking the Tyree River. Beautiful day we had there, and we had a lovely chat with Neil Gamble, who's president of the Historical Society. Um, and he talked to us about all sorts of things. He's, he's a very good raconteur. As I say, um, he's
0: so knowledgeable he about is. the area. It's yeah, quite incredible. Is.
2: So we actually have divided his interview into two because it was, it was uh, covered a couple of subjects. So the first part is Neil talking about how the Tyree was, how it was drained and used for agriculture and uh, how they went about doing that. So this is, this is Neil talking about that. So we're doing another outside broadcast. We find ourselves today at the Tyree Historical Park. In the company of the esteemed Neil Gamble, who's a notable tirey personage. Lovely to be here, Neil. Thank you for having us.
5: Thank you, Kay. I nice fit... to have you in our little office here. Thank you.
2: Yes, we're in the, uh, the the vestry of the Old Berwick Church on the Historical Park. And I feel like I'm royalty sitting in these beautiful chairs you've got here. Yes. Sort Very of good. throned here. So these got some history to them, I guess.
5: These are uh, those particular chairs. Uh, come from the original boardroom of the Tyree County Council ah. after it was formed. So uh, that's what the councilors sat in. The, those chairs. Yes, you're you're right top of the tree there.
2: So someone very important has sat here before me. So yes. that's why I feel quite honoured. Absolutely. <laughs> so you've uh, you were born and bred on the Tyree Neal.
5: Yes, that's right. Yeah. What was it
2: like growing up around
5: here? It, well, I suppose it's similar to everybody else, but. I, we, My parents had a dairy farm and my father were, ran a contracting business so I was involved with machinery and general dairying and stuff obviously from when I was born. In fact in the early days uh, uh, I was taken to the cow shed when I could stand <laughs> and stuck in a milk can. In and a milk I, I could only <laughs> just see over the edge because I was a bit of a tearaway, away I guess and it was the only way <laughs> they could keep me in one spot. So. I started. Uh, they did leave me in the house originally in a cot, but I used to take it to pieces, and I'm still taking care of things pieces. You haven't changed, have you? Haven't changed. <laughs> so they came back from milking and found the cot in several pieces and me doing something else. So that was hence I was taken to the cowshed and stood in a milk can. <laughs> <laughs> I right, couldn't get out. So yeah, a bit of a connection with uh, dairying and 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 indeed later on I took over the farm, bought another couple of farms and as you do and then got totally tired of the whole dairying thing and got right out of that and ran a tractor painting business. But then went back into later on dairy genetics, travelled all over the South Island for one of the top AI companies in New Zealand and that was really, really good mm. going all over New Zealand or well mostly the south island catching up with farmers and dairy farmers wonderful people yeah but as a child i tended to follow my father wherever he went and school holiday time if he was bailing hay summer i inevitably tagged along behind on a push bike or something and uh, managed to worm my way into driving a tractor on doing something yeah and then like my mates at school we were all the same like all oh, we ever talked about on the playground was argued the toss between Fordson and tractors and fergusons and there was nothing else we <laughs> actually none of my group were great sports people so our main conversation was either the crops we we're all growing and working on carting hay or whatever or the merits of the latest tractor or something mm. like that now that was right way back from when i was about eight or nine you know mm. so I always leaned that way yeah, yeah.
2: hence your interest in farm implements and
5: yeah 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 well hence yes I'm also with the vintage machinery club you see and I've I've had a varying collection of vintage machinery most of my life and vintage cars so yeah but I think that's a failing in our family nearly all members of our far-flung cousins and that are involved in some shape or form in machinery yeah. Or something with wheels, yes, uh, could be motorbikes, tractors, or cars. But uh, the whole widespread family all have a hankering for mechanical stuff.
2: Mm. But it's not necessarily the modern stuff you're interested in, you've got a
1: really interesting... oh, I like
5: the modern stuff. I love the technology of new gear, mm. it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's computers, tractors, or or whatever. We've always loved new stuff, but I appreciate the old stuff too, partly because it's you can work on it yourself, mm. the modern stuff, electronic stuff, you can't. But, my father was the same, like he, he'd been a contractor all his life, but when I took over and started buying some new gear, he was the first up to have a look at the, whatever it was, it could be a mower, and he wasn't satisfied until he was allowed to go out and cut a paddock of hay or something and just <laughs> assess how that went, like at that stage, he was in his late 80s. Yeah, he also took a great interest in anything new, you know, to assess that. Because the gear is just mind-boggling what you can do today. Uh, when I was a boy, I used to drive a little Alice Chalmers, who belonged to our neighbour, cutting hay. Five-foot cut marrow, and I know it took a whole day to cut five acres. And earlier, before I drove it, my mother, uh, I'd be coming out with my mother with morning tea, and lunch, and afternoon tea, and the neighbour would stop and get off and we'd have that. Well, now you can cut five acres in pff, ten minutes. Wow! It's it's just unbelievable. Nowadays you have a mower in front and one out each side, mm. and phew, you, you must be taking three, six. You must be taking about nine meters around, whereas that we tracked was five feet. That's the kind of movement from what the early 50s to uh, probably in the last 15, 20 years that you've had these enormous machines. And their co- ground, their cover is unreal. Mm. And they're sitting there air-conditioned with the stereo mm. on. We used to just sit out in all weathers and rain running down your neck. Yeah, no, so I love new stuff. Mm. Yeah, much better.
2: But you also love old stuff because you are the president of the Tyra Historical Society. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Yeah. So what, what got you involved with the, the site? Were you there from well, the start?
5: I, 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 like, I wasn't at the start. It started 50 years ago, about 1971 or so. And uh, you'd have been, where, what, 10? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Apparently a lot of memorabilia if you like Was being sold to roving second hand dealers And mm. maybe or, or their, mm. those kind of people And some people felt that there was too much of our early history going yeah. as in, It could be household items or whatever So the the historical society kind of got formed And the committee, were, there was over 100 members And Gosh. the committee was, it's always set about 10 That's set at that, very active And they went out mm. and gathered a lot of stuff and uh, kept it at their own place until they could find a home. And eventually they found this place. This was a reserve, designated as a reserve in the late 1800s. So they got the ability to access that at a peppercorn rental. Mm. And the first building was the courthouse, and uh, which came the Outram Courthouse. So it came up here, it was the first building up and put down. There was a big official opening, everybody's standing around the courthouse. And since then, there's been a few trees and this and that. Then the jail came up, they found that it was being used as a garden shed somewhere, <laughs> and they found it, got it.
2: And it was it, the Outram Jail. Out from yep. Mm-hmm. yep,
5: yep, because the courthouse is still set up as a courthouse. It's all set up the way where the judge sat, where the accused stood, where the public could come and what, where you're held until your case come up, and a counter where you if you weren't too naughty you paid your fine Mm. and went home if you're a little bit more naughty you got thrown in the jail (laughs) so uh, and if you're really bad they took you to Dunedin jail after a day Mm. or two so uh, the school would nearly be next year it sat like that for probably 20 odd years and then suddenly it all happened at once when the Outram school infant room somehow no longer met the requirements of modern education education, and they wanted to well they just wanted to leave it behind Mm. and We made arrangements and we got that. It was a major job to move it up here. We did that, and almost at the same time, about a year later, the Berwick Church at Berwick, the Presbyterian Church, became surplus to requirements and and it was deconsecrated or whatever. And they were trying to sell it. We prefer not to pay for anything, of course. Mm. And the Berwick Church remains the only building we've paid for because Ah. most of the others have been donated as a historic edifice Mm. that we can. Mm. The Presbyterians uh, were keen to get something, Mm. so we bought it off them and then we were preparing, our builder was preparing it for shift. When the engine shed from the Mosgill Outram Railway Line, and this is the shed where you went past the railway station and the engine went into the shed for night, Mm. at night time, then owned by DCC and it was being used. They kept a grader in it and various bits and pieces mm. locally. They decided that was surplus. They wanted to sell that whole block where the uh, railway station had been the engine shed. In to fact, today's fire station, I think, is on part of that. So they were going to they arranged with the fire brigade to burn it down, mm. to get rid of it. And that, and we heard about it and our committee went to them and said, well, hey, that's a fairly historic building. It's the only building left now, or at that time, from that railway that ran from 1877 mm to 1953 and the DCC or occasionally moved really really fast, immediately wrote back and said yeah you're quite right that is historic, if you can get it off the site within three weeks it's yours. But <gasps> oh. oh dear. So we had to divert our builder and lift the thing up about four feet high. So the day we shifted Berwick Church the people came from about Edenvale, I think, Scobie Transport Yep. They they brought an old it's on the side of the road at Milton. It's a toll house from somewhere, and sat it down on the side of the road at Milton. It's been done up. It's sitting there, mm. and then came up to Berwick, popped underneath the Berwick Church, picked it up, took off, came up here to the park, dropped it off, drove back down to Outram and picked up the engine shed and brought it up. They did a good sat job. It down. A whole lot in one day. Wow. So that obviously blew our budget and mm. everything else yep. uh, quite rapidly. Although it's, it's not very expensive to shift them. The expense comes in maintaining a wooden building exactly. later. And in the meantime, we'd been donated a house in the early days so that perhaps a sharp farmer who'd retired was allowed to live in the house, rent-free, provided he mowed the lawns and opened mm. the museum, stuff like that. That worked very well for it.
2: So was that house not up here either? No, oh, so that, that house was actually somewhere? a
5: DC ele- DCC Electricity Department house oh. and possibly the foreman or someone like that. And the shed just beside it was actually the official depot for the Mosgill electricity mm. uh, people. So oh, right. that's where they kept, they had a truck in there and bolts and right. bits and pieces. So uh, so
2: that's been converted to a residential property.
5: Yeah, well of course it always what the house itself was residential in mm. as much as it was always a power board right. employee right. lived in it. So that effectively
2: got, you then had a caretaker living on it. Effectively a caretaker
5: yeah. uh, mm. looking after mm. it. Mm. Yeah. So mm. we've moved away from that now and now we tenant the house, that somebody pays it. Mm. Market rent and that money goes towards our outgoings and what the upkeep
2: of the other buildings. Yep. Yeah. Mm. But it is a
5: huge job on the wooden buildings.
2: Yeah. yeah. Then of course you've got the Outram Town Board building as well. Yep.
5: The mm. that was the last one to come up, it was the Outram Town Board yeah. office. It's Which only is a, a little building. Tiny,
2: tiny very building. Very tiny,
5: yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, we had a, a complete town board town, cleric, everything. Yeah, all um, in
3: that one small...
5: And they must have been fairly intimate in yeah. that uh, building because it's not very big. And then to make it worse, at one stage they put a, a wall through halfway and the first dentist operated one half and the town board and the other. So yeah. at that stage the town board would be nearly sitting on top of each other.
3: Goodness, but
5: that would be before... The dentist building was built down at the school. I think the dentist was mainly for the school, mm. but why it was in the town board office, I don't know. But uh, we did find one or two needles and things on oh, the floor when we were moving it around. But, yeah, to um, your
3: tooth. <laughs> yeah,
5: so we've converted that. It's a bit like a pioneer cottage in a way. Mm. Yeah. It meant we could put all our things like you household know, householdy things like dishes and a table mm. and a bit of an oven or a fireplace and that yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. put it all in one place. To see what, what life would have been like. Yes, Way that's back.
2: right. Yeah. So when did you get involved in the society? When did you join?
5: Oh, it'd be the early 90s. Cousin and I went along to the annual meeting. I've always had a bit of an interest in things that have gone on before and, and how things work, families and where they were and that kind of stuff and somebody quite interesting was speaking at the annual meeting and I along of course, somehow immediately ended up on the committee along with my cousin <laughs> who's still on and and went from there. So um, yeah, a, a bit of interest in, in local history and knowing it because remember, my, my grandfather came here from Northern Ireland uh, about 1870 and uh, we've been on the Torrey ever since. We know a lot about flooding because our f- family farmed at Riverside and in those days they were getting flooded two or three times a year. Mm. So my father, there was a nine in the family and, and they were well used to all that stuff. And then my father and mother got a farm at Mamona. Usual problem of flooding again. And then I took that over and got one or two more. And also got flooded. So we've had a fair connection. In fact, we can actually look back about 300 years, and we've always been involved with the dairy industry. My own nephew owns what used to be about 11 farms back when I was a boy. Uh, but like everything else, they've a lot have. He runs them as three units. They've all got to be amalgamated. And mm. Like me and I did that too. I was. Had three farms in the end running as one, it was only a small farm even mm. then by today's standards. But we've always been connected to the land, and mm. for some reason, always getting flooded. We yes. always had low land.
2: <laughs> There's been quite a history of floods on the Tyree, it, it, it started out as a as marshland. So what,
5: yeah, it, it did. Um, must
2: have taken quite a bit of work to get it ready to grow. A tremendous
5: uh, amount of work because it was you're right, it was because you got to remember, I think it was. 1844. Doctor Edward Shortland, I think, was must have been sent out to do a bit of a reconnoitre of the area before the mm. settlers came. And he left Dunedin. I'm not sure how he got to Torrey Mouth. Possibly walked, I suppose. And there met some Maoris, and uh, they got a canoe and came up the Torrey River, up past Henley, up past Ellington, diverted into the Awero, and came up as far as they could. And the Awero they wouldn't have got as far as East Torrey, I don't think. At that point, he had to get out and walk. Mm. And he could see in all that journey, virtually all the Tyrie was waist deep and stagnant water and mm. stuff between floods. And uh, he walked then back to Dunedin. But his report was that the land was no good for anything, mm. or it never would be. So it makes um, you wonder
2: why it was settled.
5: Yeah. Yeah, you, you would. But of course, I suppose the Scottish settlers are made of sterner of stuff. Yes. And when they. <laughs> they came, like a challenge. Yeah, they like a challenge. <laughs> So they came and, of course, settled around the outsides. There Mm. was down the coastal hills through Otakai and that. Lots of people. At one stage, over 70 children walked down the road to Otakai's school every day. Are all these small holdings up in the hills yeah. and the same round the other side at Mangatua every road that's well it's a road because every, every stream that came down the hill ended up with two or three houses or more on that stream you know for their water and that. Mm. And of course the roads ended up by default there as well mm. and and that's where it all started but then they started moving down onto the flat mm. you know if it was between floods they might duck down and try and mm. Use it.
2: And would that have been because the land they, had, they saw the potential in the land because of the flooding? It made it the soil. It good. would have
5: been, um, if you could have drained it, it would have been more fertile and stuff yeah. because the higher land on both sides is almost marginal country. Mm. The only good thing about it is it's high and dry, but not as good as if, if you could have drained that swamp because every flood, which would be many times a year, it just simply eddied across the Tyree Plain, West mm. Tyree Plain, because there wasn't any flood banks then, of course. Mm. So it just left the river channel and just edited all around the place and just filled it up mm. like a swamp. So they tried draining it in various ways. It ended up with about three or four drainage boards, none working with each other. Yeah. And they all tended to be draining from the Mangatua to the river, trying to drain it that way. So that you, you'd have one near out from another one a bit further down, another further down. And they were generally at loggerheads with each other. There was right. no... You know uh, working with each other
2: so how did they go about what how did they try to drain the land
5: mostly they would dig a drain across to the river so that theoretically the water would flow down and mm. into the river of course when the river flooded uh, the, the opposite occurred as well yes, it, it goes back back again. again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes <clears> they <it> might <throat> have a pump or something at the river to try and pump it you're fairly early days so there wouldn't have been engines or anything so mm. that was and, and It was fairly antagonistic because they built banks as well between each division. And on more than one occasion, if there was a river flood, somebody with the best bank could remain moderately dry inside while everybody else was up to their neck. And that wasn't a happy occasion for, for some of them. And on one occasion, there was a loud bang in the night and some of the bank disappeared. So one of the opposing team had blown the bank up. Oh, so in the morning everybody was flooded. Oh. Um, And there is a court case, if you look it up, the (coughs) Mamona litigation went on for some time in the court. And then the next move would have been the realisation that in big rainfall events, particularly easterlies, it drives into the Mangatours. It came down these streams, flat out, and filled the plain up again. Yes. And and that was some really forward thinking because out of that they developed the contour channel. And it starts from near the cemetery at at West Tyree and goes right down until it meets the Waipori River in the south Mm. and it follows the contour of the land which is why it's called the contour channel Mm. so it drops so much every mile it's done very very accurately for the time this was done in about 1910, 1912 all by horses and scoops, Mm. no machinery
2: Tough country up there isn't it? Oh yes, and
5: like I say it weaves all over the place because it's following that contour somehow they just got that dead right Mm. so the water that landed here near the cemetery just trickled its way down Mm. and that was brilliant because all those streams then went into the contour that's a lot of water too when it rains and it diverted it down straight into the Waipuri River which went into Lake Waipuri thereby saving, filling up the the West Tyre area.
0: Mm. Oh well I think we should probably take another break There, and this is a fitting song Uh, Combine Harvester by the Wurzels. Ah,
2: brilliant, yep.
6: I drove my tractor through your haystack last night. I threw me pitchfork at your dog to keep quiet. Now someone's telling me that you're more me. Proper disgrace. Now, if I cleaned it up, would you change your mind? Couple, let that last words of dance. I wore brand new gaiters and McCardy right pants. Uh, in your new Sunday dress, with your perfume smelling grand. We had our foe, us took in a and end. Now I ain't got a brand new combine harvester, and I'll give you the key. Now that we've moved past our fifties, I think that you and me should stop. this Get me
0: on your land. And that was Combine Harvester by the Wurzels.
5: The other things to think about there was in those days, all farms relied on these streams for stock water. Yeah. A stream would throw for, flow through a farm and the cows and whatnot would drink out of it. Mm. So that meant when they cut the uh, contrary channel through, the farms below it suddenly lost their stock ah, water. Right. So what they did there was each stream they put a um, what they called a siphon, which is a pipe. I'd let's, let's say it's three or four inches big. They dug a pipe in under the contrary channel. So a portion of the water would always flow through that pipe ah. and carried on down. So mm. those people could still have water. In later years, of course, you went to either artesian or pumping out of bores, as it is now, but in those days they didn't have that. So that was that. The other thing is, you can well imagine the farms that the contour went through suddenly got cut in half because you've got this enormous channel going through. So they're all cut in half, so nearly every farm had to have its own bridge so they could actually get one end to the other. Mm. It would still make the farm management quite a nuisance Mm. because if you wanted to shift your cows from... Below the contour, he had to go way along to where the bridge was and come ah. up. But at the same time, like everybody was behind that, and uh, it was done by a lot of local contractors, labourers, farmers with horses and scoops. Mm. And it went right through a couple of lakes. There's a Mary Lake and Lake Tatawai, it went right through there, drained the whole, the whole lot, would be draining out into the Waipori River. So that was a major, major step forward. In mm. the early 1900s, didn't solve the old problem of the floods all the time. So the government stepped in in 1920 and created the Torrey River Improvement Act, which took it away from the, the drainage, away from these arguing drainage boards, right. and treated the West Tyree as one entity. So the Tyree River. History
2: repeats.
5: Yes. <laughs> the, yeah. And the Tyree River Trust was formed, which was responsible for the flood protection, as in the flood banks, mm. and the drainage. And that, that was a fully set up local body. Today so it it's quite been a amalgamated in with the regional mm. council and that. Yeah. Um, but that was set up and that started work so that through the 20s a riverbank was built from Outram virtually to Berwick. That also is quite a lot of work from Outram to about Granton Road. It was done with a little railway line running along the top of the formed bank and scooping the material out of the bank near the current Outram Bridge mm. just below the historic park. So they'd load the wagons and whip them down and tip it out, making the bank. And from Granton Road to Allenton it was all done with horses and ploughs and scoop teams. Mm. My father, that was his first job when he was 15, working a scoop team. So mm. what they did was plough the land on the berm. And the berm, of course, is if you've got the flood bank back over in one place and you've got the river in another, the land in between is called the berm. Mm. So they would plough the berm and then come in with the scoops, scoop up that soil, and skid it over and tip it off and make a bank.
3: Right. So
5: you're doing two things. You're lowering the the land and the berm to allow more flood water to go through and you're you're picking up something to make a bank. Mm. Now, obviously, that's not a brilliant bank because uh, it's bits of cock's foot and uh, whatever is in there, but hey, it's a bank. And it's still holding today. So that's the
2: same bank. It goes along the, the same now. bank.
5: It's been tingled around with oh. and levelled and, and that, but basically it's the same jolly bank. Right. So that went to Allenton. They brought a huge steam shovel, possibly the biggest to come to New Zealand. It was supposed to be going to South Africa or somewhere. Brought it here. It was a huge thing. Four sets of tracks and steam, obviously. Mm. It it made the bank from uh, Allenton right to where the current flood-free tea tree Bridge is yep. down about there, and it did that. By even worse, what it did was dug an enormous hole and swung over and dropped the dirt on making a bank. So Mm. that hole, uh, and you can see them on the flood free, and, and in fact they are, they're still there right from Elmton to Tea Tree. But there's so many willow trees in that now, mm. you can't, you'd can't. Yeah. need to know where they were. Yeah. But on the flood free, you can still see them near the, the flood free highway. Mm. So they were quite a long, let's say it was 100 metres long, for example. And it would be quite deep. And they'll just dig the ground out of there, Yeah, you know, everything, all sorts of old swamp wood or whatever, mm. and swing it over and make a bank. Right. And then they'd leave a, a bit of a gap so you could get across for stock, start a game, dig another one. So they were called borrow obviously, because you're borrowing the land to make a bank. Mm. So that went right down to there. But the, the land from Tea Tree Bridge to, well, round a Barrett, well, certainly as far as the pump station, was too soft for um, that kind of yeah. thing. And I think they had to somehow use scoops attached to a winch on a tractor or something to try and, drag through the swampy land and drag it across and make a bank. Mm. How that bank holds is beyond me. But anyway, and, and so you got to where the pump station is. We'll come back to that. And from there back to the uh, Waipuri River, there's a channel where the Waipuri River comes down from Berwick, meets the contour channel, and there's a channel. The channel comes right around near the pump station. How they built the bank there was they had an electric dredge don't ask me where the power came from. No. There was big cables, photos of the cables and that. So that dredge dredged the floor of the Waipori River
3: Gosh.
5: and and blew it out on the side and, and it had a wooden frame so all the water came out and ran away and, and left behind bits of dirt, mud, whatever else. That must know. have been
2: quite smelly.
5: Yes, but that's <laughs> the bank. Yeah. That was the bank. So it's basically the
2: bank. the bank is the bottom of the river.
5: Yeah, yeah, amazing. and that was the Bank of the in nineteen eighty. Ah, uh, so like I mean, it wouldn't fill you with confidence, but hey, no. they didn't have any other way, mm. so they did that. So meanwhile, they built a pump station, and and that was in waist deep water, virtually, yeah. you know, as it was. And when it went in, it had three pumps, citroen pumps uh, that were built just after the turn of the century. They went in, and they did subsequently did eighty years of pumping, and they were still oh. just as efficient at the end as they were when they started. Well built. They were the biggest. Flood pumps in the southern hemisphere did when they, they went in. they
2: were they made here or do they import them? Import. All
5: oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. from France. So. Uh, so citrons are good for something. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> citron's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we have one of the pumps here now at the pack and uh, yeah. there was three. The others were scrapped. We managed to get one from yeah. the regional council. So they're a bit of history. So they they built that big pump station and then realised, oh, I suppose, well, that's not a hang of a lot of good, uh, we need channels. Yeah. And they they ended up with two steam dredges, not dredges, uh, steam shovels. One of them, I think it was the one that did the bank coming down through to Tetring. It dug an enormous canal from the pump station right to Miller Road oh, uh, in Mamona, which that. is only uh, about fifty meters from the airport driveway.
3: Yeah,
5: and you can see it. When, yeah. Well, it's hard to see because the airport trees and all that stuff. Mm. But it, it's it runs parallel to the airport driveway mm-hmm. at that point, and it's quite deep. And quite big. So that shovel cut that big channel. And then there was ditches cut east-west, you might say, feeding that. There's over 150 kilometres of drains on the torrey. So at Miller Road, That's where the airport entrance...
2: That's a lot
5: entrance, of drains, isn't it? Mm, it's a lot of drains. At the airport entrance, it bifurcates into two. One side heads generally towards Outram or Granton Road. Right. And that was basically an old creek, Wiley's Creek, and back in the day. And they deepened it and stuff and brought it down and met uh, so it could suck Mm. the water from that area. And then they did another one, which was, because the the drain was called the main drain, big on flash names, uh, (laughs) the main drain, and then they decided they needed to try and hook into the area roughly where you come over Ellington Bridge today and down centre road. Uh, There was actually a lake in that area. They needed to try and hook the land, so they did a smaller canal straight up into there called Mm. the main drain extension.
2: (laughs) Another creative Yeah,
5: very creative. Yeah. Yeah. So that that then gave you this artery with leads into it to uh, lead to the pump station. Right. And that's that was the start of bringing the tauri drainage to where it is today. All of this water was pumped into no, the tauri? No. That, all this water pumps into Lake Waipori. Ah, yeah. okay. Now remember Lake Waipori and Lake Wawhola are one and the same in a way. Mm. Like, I mean, there's no actual boundary saying no. you're now entering Lake mm. Waipori. Or Waihola. So it pumps straight into Lake Waipori, which by uh, various means eddies along into Lake Waipori and comes round and joins the Tauri River yeah. where the Tea Tree Bridge is. Yes. And uh, so that so it's pumping directly into Waipori, not into the river. Right. Yep. Okay. So in a way, Waipori and Waihola can be a bit of a holding pond if you like yes if the river is very very high they can probably still keep going into there
2: there's some capacity there
5: yeah yeah there is um quite a bit and then the third the other drain is what was lee creek that starts also not that far from woodside yeah weaves its way down and that was deepened it's another artery that cuts into the main drain Mm. uh, down Henley so all those arteries leading to it and so you then you had the flood bank and you had all the drains right. leading to it. So that from that point on was when the tyre really started to get drained out. It's still yeah. not perfect. We still need better drainage. We need better pumping. But there's now one, two, three, there's four pumps at that pump station because we put in two submersibles after the 1980 flood, which helped out the three citrons. Yeah. Uh, but then when the council pulled out the citrons, they only replaced them with two pumps, which theoretically would pump as much. All right. The fact is they don't, but anyway, uh, <laughs> that's a, a, a sore point with the farmers. But there is two more pumps draining what used to be an, another um, lake, Lake Eskog, and uh, that they pump straight into the Contour Channel. Mm. Because remember, a big percentage of the West Tire is under sea level. So yes. the, 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 that's the difference between here and almost anywhere else. You can watch the news and somebody, let's say it's in the North Island, and They've got water up to their neck that's through their house. It's everything else. And the next night, the TV goes back and reports. And, of course, the water's all gone. It's gone. Yeah. It's, it's left a hell of a mess. We'll give mm-hmm. you that. And But it's all gone. Now, on the West Torrey, because of the um, prevalence of so much low land under, under sea level, there is no... Out for that's why it was a swamp in the first place, and and it when just, it
2: floods here, it stays for weeks. It just it?
5: stays, yeah, because whatever yeah. comes in here can't go out yeah. without, unless it's pumped. Yes, so that's the difference. So, like, I mean, in nineteen eighty, must have taken two or three months, right? To oh, gosh. pump it down. So uh, that would have
2: destroyed the
5: grass. Oh yeah, 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 mm. uh, yeah But you you got used to regrassing. I think I regrassed my farm about fifteen times. Wow. I got twenty seven floods in twenty six years. Gosh,
2: and uh, you still didn't give up?
5: <laughs> no, no. Well, well, you know, you just kind of go with the flow. Yeah, that was, Now, literally. that wasn't, um, the only river flood I had was 1980. Mm. And, and of course, we were, it was through the house and over the fences and things like that. And okay, it was a flood. The other floods were the fact that my farm was one of the ones below sea level. Yes. So that when it rained, the higher farms, it ran off onto the low ones. Mm. And, and that was all over the west area. Yeah. So those floods, the water might have been three feet deep. But it wasn't a river flood; it had no. come from the higher land, and and that just showed that you cannot, without pumps, you've got nothing. You you only you'll go yeah. back to a swamp. Yeah. So. Um, so it's
2: a swamp waiting to happen. Basically. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
5: Absolutely. Like I mean, it could. It's a floodplain, and we're never going to get away from that. Mm. And and we're going to have floods. Hopefully, you only see one in your lifetime. I only seen one. You know, The nineteen eighty was the biggest I had in my farming lifetime. Yeah. If you got those sort of things more than that it would be very difficult, perhaps easier in the old days. They kind of went with the flow and they didn't have the same production. Mm-hmm. But today it, it's very, very, the economics of farming are pretty at times marginal yes. and you can't afford to have your farm taken out from under you with a flood for 12 months. No, You can't survive it. The old people could. Yeah, but not now. So and and also the stock numbers have risen dramatically.
2: Right. Oh well, that was a great great talk we had with Neil. Really good. enjoyed our day up there, and so I can't, can't wait to go back. I really would love to hear more of his memories. Really good storyteller. So thank you so much, Neil. Yeah. Um. One of the
0: things that I've been looking at this week is I have been scanning some letters that Ethel Theeman wrote to Dorothy Theeman ah. in oh, can't kind remember of, well, the years. I think it was nineteen forties, and so she was touring around overseas and London and Istanbul and there's some photographs of her climbing mountains and yeah it's fascinating but the great thing is that handwriting is really beautiful as well. Oh yes everybody
2: wrote so well. They really did and
0: obviously I don't know whether there was a big gap between sort of being able to send letters Mm. so every piece of the paper is just crammed full of writing yeah, yeah. oh well they
2: probably were, there was probably a shortage exactly. because of the war yeah. and they had to you know make full use of whatever paper but they that's had. that's what I
0: thought I thought mm. wow isn't that amazing and there was a photograph one of the photographs of this mountain and I used Google and found yeah. virtually the exact same photograph today as was in that oh, yeah so it was this sort of stone bridge and yeah so yeah. it would be great to be able
2: to share those yeah it's yeah. really interesting that people are still able to travel you don't think of people I I mean, know. holidays and you know you just think of the war being everyone hunkering down and exactly but, but actually life did go on and yeah and people were traveling and enjoying yeah. Um, yeah, tours of the
0: world one of the letters was from October 1935 oh right before yeah, the war. yeah. and yeah. yeah so just to try and read that and sometimes mm. making out what the writing is saying yeah. it's kind of difficult, but that's kind of the joy of it. Is, it is yeah. trying to work out what the sentence is by being able to read the first part and the last yeah. part. Yeah. And do they
2: kind of give an indication of what life would have been like at the time? A reflection, sort of social commentary not about what was happening so
0: far. Not All that right. I've read so far, but More I'm personal. just kind of yeah, yeah. just yeah. sort of tripping around and what they've been yeah. doing. And because even one of the letters says, I'm going to use this as kind of a diary. So, oh, fantastic! Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Just so well. I can't wait to read them. Really, really. <laughs> really
2: quick. And they're going on to uh, scattered seeds. They will oh, be. Yes. Yeah. So. Yes, and don't forget you can have a look at the Scattersees archive, do have an explore It's on dunedin.recollect.co.nz. That's the one. Uh, Or you can find it on the library website under digital resources. And also don't forget that if you've got a story you'd like to tell us, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can call us on 03 474 3690. You can email us on library at dcc.govt.nz. Or you can pop into any of your local libraries and just ask to leave a message and we will get back to you, Jill and I and uh, we'll arrange to meet up with you and hear your story we really would like to hear from you to
0: add these stories to our archives so. yes we do
2: you are part of the we stories to of Dunedin <laughs> and no matter how big or small your story is it's still part of the fabric of the story of Dunedin so we'd, we'd love to hear it please
0: and what better day to spend some time thinking about your life in Dunedin than Otago interview yeah, Day.
2: Yeah, sit and think about what you could tell us. Yeah, We probably have run out of time, as usual. Have. We've never got long <laughs> enough. We could end with a, a lovely song. It's an appropriate one for the day.
0: One of our favourite from the Mentalist Collective. This Nude one is called
1: Need a
2: Little Time Away. Don't we all?